Please turn with me, uh, dear friends, in your Bibles to Psalm 46. We'll read uh, the whole of Psalm 46 for the sermon uh, scripture this morning. Would you please stand with me now uh, for the reading of God's holy and errant word? Saints, hear now the word of God, Psalm 46, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks uh, the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. At uh, this time, uh, little ones are dismissed to the nursery with the permission of their parents. And let me ask you once again to pray now for God's blessing on his word. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, I feel my weakness. I feel my sin as I go to preach, be with all of us, O Lord. Fill us with your spirit that we may truly know you and love you and trust you from our hearts and praise your name forever. Open now to us the very words of life and feed us the bread of heaven manna for our souls that has come down for our salvation, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen. I first came to love the Psalms and to become familiar with the Psalms as a young Christian. 
I was 18 or 19, I suppose. I had been a believer for maybe two or three years. When I was in college at UCLA, to get away from the busy campus and the loud noise of my roommates in my apartment, I would write Bible verses on little index cards and take scripture and prayer walks in the beautiful hills surrounding the campus, and I would meditate on words like these, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Psalm 8, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth from his heart. And the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24. Psalm 100, of course, we sang from it this morning. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his sheep, uh, his people and the sheep of his pasture. And it was on those long walks that I first began to know and to familiarize myself with and to love Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It is written, we can see, for the chief musician. It was a psalm for the musicians, for the sons of Korah, It was to be set to music. It was meant to be sung uh, in the congregation of God's people. And though the psalm can be understood as commending the constant help and aid by which God has always protected and preserved his church, the psalm does seem to be an expression of thanksgiving for some particular deliverance. Now, having said that, it is not known exactly when Psalm 46 was written, though many commentators have long believed that it was written in the 8th century BC when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had brought a massive army against Jerusalem to lay siege to the great city and to destroy it. But the Lord miraculously intervened on behalf of his people and destroyed the Assyrian army and turned back Sennacherib. In fact, we read in 2 Kings 19.35, quote, On a certain night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians, now hear this, 180,000 of their soldiers. Imagine that. After that, we also read that Sennacherib departed, not surprisingly, that he went home to Nineveh, and there he was ultimately murdered by his own sons while he worshipped his pagan god. The psalmist, therefore, whoever he was, 
Give thanks to God for so great a deliverance wrought by the mighty hand of God himself and further exhorts the faithful to commit themselves confidently to his protection and not to doubt, indeed never to doubt, that as they rely fearlessly upon him to be their guard and their protection, they shall always be preserved from the assaults of their enemies because God has undertaken as his own special charge to himself the care and protection and preservation of his peculiar people. Indeed, we might paraphrase this way. Because God is our refuge and strength, we will not fear. Because God has charged himself with the special care and protection of his own people, therefore we will live confidently and fearlessly rely upon him. You understand, therefore, that from the outset, he's saying something of tremendous significance. First, he is expressing confidence that God is the protector and provider of his people. Throughout history, God has cared for his people. He has preserved them. He has delivered them. He has saved them. He has redeemed them. He has been their shield, their guide, their defense, their mighty fortress, their strong tower. He was their deliverer from slavery in Egypt. He destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea when they pursued Israel. Again, he saved Israel from the Philistines when he raised up David to kill Goliath. He destroyed the Assyrian army, 180,000 strong in one night. And because God has acted in history to save his people, knowing therefore that he is their refuge and their strength as he has always been, we may fearlessly rely on him. Notice that God is our refuge and strength. He is the particular refuge and strength of his covenant people, of those who trust in him. He has not promised to be such to the world in general, but God has vouchsafed himself to his peculiar people alone, and he has promised to be their God. And God is our refuge and strength. Who is he who is our refuge and strength? It is none other than God himself. The one who is eternal, almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who says the word and the world is created, who decrees it, and no one shall stay his hand, whose sovereign will alone 
determines everything that occurs in the universe down to the minutest detail. Who ordains and it comes to pass. He ordains the rising and falling of nations. The lifting up and the tearing down of kings and of kingdoms. He created every star. He knows their place. He calls them all by name. Dear child, he numbers the very hairs on your head. He says that nothing can happen in your life apart from his perfect and wise will and fatherly care. So who is our refuge and strength? The transcendent, almighty, eternal Lord. The one who is able to deliver his people from all their enemies. And yet this transcendent, almighty Lord is also personal and present. He is the very possession of his people. He belongs to us. He is near to us. He is our God. And therefore the psalmist says he is a very present help in trouble. He's near. He is profusely present, we might say. He's not just a present help in trouble, but a very present help in trouble. Some are present. Some are present, helping us in trouble. But God is a very present help whenever trouble is our lot. He is near to you, present with you, among you. Now, a theologian may be able to say that God is powerful and God is almighty. But only the church can say God is our refuge and strength. For he has pledged himself to be our protector. This he told Abraham of old. I am your shield, Abram. Your defender. Your very great reward. It is why the believer can, in the words of verse 2, live fearlessly. It is why we do not have to fear. But I don't think that's the experience of most Christians today. Do you? That we live fearlessly. I think, in fact, that we do live in fear very often. We fear many things. We fear what others think of us. We fear failure. We fear the disapproval and rejection of others. But more to the point, as our text would have it, we fear what is going to happen in the world. The direction that things are going. We fear the situation that we might be in will be so dire that the people that will be put in charge will be so corrupt that we will have no future. We fear what may happen, happen if this person or that person is elected. We fear war, terrorism, economic collapse, rising sin and evil, its impact on our children, 
We fear what may happen to the church in our country if secularization, even paganism, continue to engulf our nation. The church of God has always had reasons, humanly speaking, to be afraid. It may encourage you that ours is not the first generation of people to think that things are not going particularly well. We see culture quite literally collapsing around us. We fear what that means. What will life be like for our children once we're gone? You know, many generations in history have believed theirs would be the last. It's been very interesting, somewhat demoralizing, to hear the intense language during the current election season. This is the most important election in a generation. You hear? We are at a crossroads for our nation, some say. We are at a turning point from which there will be no going back. We have one chance to save our republic, and that is that you get to the polls on November 8th. You've heard it all. Dear friend, if this is the best our nation can do, the candidates there are before us, what does that say about our country? This election has revealed something profoundly disturbing about our nation that far transcends whatever happens on November 8th. What does it all say about our character as a people And I'm not talking about Trump or Hillary. I'm talking about us. The election has allowed us to hold up a mirror to our country and to our character. And what we see is pitiful. It is not pretty. Not pretty at all as we look ourselves in the face. We are a nation that has lost the fear of God. We're a nation of liars and of blasphemers. And we're a nation at war, but not at war so much with one another or with another country, but at war with our own souls and at war with God. We are in complete rebellion against the Almighty. I've noticed that we are a nation of liars. People don't tell the truth about themselves or about one another. They don't believe the truth. They believe what they want to believe. If it helps their program and their purposes and their little kingdoms, they will say whatever they feel they have to say for their side to win. Truth be damned. Instead of loving our neighbor, We identify his faults. We tear him apart and destroy him. Where is common decency? Where is nobility of spirit? Where is honor among us but lost? 
Where is the man or woman with the basic human decency to say, you know, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to speak to the issue you raise. My parents taught me not to speak ill of my fellow human being. I wonder, does such a person even exist anymore? Someone who would rather keep silent than destroy with words and lies. But we're blinded by politics. We're blinded by power and by envy. We're deluded by sin and darkness. We cannot see. We're convinced we're right and others are wrong. We cannot distinguish the truth from a lie. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Dear friend, if there is something to fear, it is not what happens on November 8th. It is the future of a nation of liars, of sexual deviants, and of blasphemers. Forget who was elected. I hope you see in these words the implicit truth that man is not our refuge and strength. Politicians are not our refuge and strength. Elections are not our refuge and strength. Economies are not. Armies are not. Surely we ourselves are not. I am not my refuge and strength. God is. And if any of those other things were, then of course I will live in fear. I do live in fear. And it is because those things are so often my hope that I do live in fear. Because I know that every human being that has ever lived has failed. And every human institution there ever was has failed and will always fail. I know that instinctively. That is why when I trust in them, my trust is misplaced and I live in fear. But if God is my refuge and strength, and only if God is my refuge and strength, indeed because God is my refuge and strength, because of what he has done, then I will live fearlessly. What you and I must do, beloved, is spend much more time reflecting on and meditating on God, his history, his word, his mighty acts, and much less time meditating on politics and the economy and the election. I'm not encouraging you to be ignorant or uninformed, but if you spend your whole day on politics and not much time meditating on God's promises, you will surely then live in fear. But if, like the psalmist, you meditate on God's saving acts, if you thank him for them, if you remember his power, then you will live confidently and live fearlessly. For God is our refuge and strength. And even if the unthinkable were to happen, even if the earth were to be removed, or the mountains were to fall into the sea, or if the earth were to quake and landslides were to happen and hurricanes were to blow and the seas were to roar, even if the worst thing you can imagine actually comes to pass, 
Still, he says, we will live fearlessly in trust in our God. Now, verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. It is actually a very interesting and even ironic statement because alone among great cities, Jerusalem lacked a great river. Uh, The Egyptians had their Nile. Uh, To the east, there was the Tigris and the Euphrates. Jerusalem had little streams, and that was it. No such great river. But God was willing to become for his people all that a river could be and more. Where there was weakness, God more than made up for that with himself, with his own presence. Notice, there is a river when in fact there was no river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. No great river, but the river of God himself and its streams making glad that city. Lacking a river, God became her river. See, beloved, your deficiencies give more room for God's all-sufficiency. It is in our weakness that God is made strong. It is in our lack that God proves himself to be all that we truly need. It's in our deficiency that God proves himself to be all-sufficient. Look at the believing church today. How impressive does it appear? Is there a great river running through her? Does she seem strong and mighty and powerful and influential? Or is she often weak, often small, often the object of scorn and ridicule, subject in many parts of the world to persecution? We lack many things. We are weak and deficient in many ways. We often try and we fail. We worship and we give and we serve and we witness, but we do not see dramatic results. What can we say about ourselves? But we are often weary and weak, sinful and failing, troubled, and yet plodding along in faith. You see our deficiencies everywhere. But God is in the midst of us. He is strongest when we are weak. When we are empty, he is full of power. When we are foolish, God is wise. Where we are full of sin, he is full of righteousness. You see, there's a paradox to the gospel, isn't there? One must be made weak in order to be made strong. One must be last in order to be first. One must give up everything in order to truly have life. One must count his life nothing 
in order to be something in the kingdom of God. One must humble himself in order to be exalted. One must admit he is weak and that he has nothing in order to gain everything. We are perplexed, bewildered, and broken, weak, surely in the eyes of the world, but in our own eyes too. But God is in the midst of us. What we lack, he possesses and he provides. Dear friend, I firmly believe that God keeps us from having everything we want in this life. That he purposely withholds from us much that we long for. That he prevents us from having every possible success. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Because if we had everything we wanted, if we accomplished everything we set out to do, if we did everything in life just the way we envisioned, what would be our need to trust in God? It is generally speaking not the high and the mighty, but the meek and the lowly who know they need Jesus Christ. People of great wealth and power and influence often have difficulty admitting they are sinners and that they need a Savior. Jesus Christ did not come for the righteous, those righteous in their own eyes or in the eyes of others, those who think they have it all together. He came for the weak, for the lowly, for the sick, for the downcast, for the brokenhearted. He came for people like you and for people like me. If your heart breaks over sin, if you are poor in spirit, if you mourn your own unrighteousness, paradoxically, Jesus Christ says you are blessed, you are rich, and you will be comforted. This is the one I esteem, declares the Lord. The one with a broken and contrite spirit who trembles at my word. The thing about the church is this. The river is not our river. God is our river. The things that make other nations great are not the things that make us great. What makes us great and glorious and gives us joy is God himself in the midst of us, even now. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that is all our glory, and not ourselves and not anything about us. The people may look at us and say, what makes you so great? You don't even have a river like the other great cities do. Jesus Christ is our river. His streams make us glad. Because he is in our midst, we shall not be moved. So where do Christians turn in times of trouble? To the newspaper? To the internet? No, they turn to God's word. They turn to the Psalms. Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. 
It is rendered into verse in his memorable hymn, uh, Ein Feste Burg, A Mighty Fortress. As he sat during the Diet of Augsburg, he would sing it every day, playing his lute, standing at the window and looking up to heaven. In time, Luther would come to the place where it seemed as if everything was lost, that the entire world was against him and that there was no hope. The storms of life raged, the mountains seemed to be quaking, the seas raging. At the Diet of Worms, he stood before the rulers of the church and the princes of the Holy Roman Empire. He was brought to trial accused with heresy, and when challenged, they said, Martin Luther, are you really saying that you and you alone have properly understood the gospel? That all the doctors of the church are wrong. That the popes and the leaders of the church are wrong, all wrong, and that you alone Martin Luther, are right. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You claim that man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and that you have discovered this truth in the Bible alone and that you have properly interpreted the Bible when all the other teachers have gotten it wrong. Is that what you are saying? It is you against the world, Martin. Are you now ready to recant? Recant of all of it. You know the rest of the story. You may not know that he was asked 24 hours to think and pray asked for 24 hours. Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, he said the next day, I cannot recant, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Why would he do that? He had made God his refuge and strength. Dear friends, there is a storm coming, and it will be the greatest storm, the most violent, the most deadly, the most catastrophic storm to ever come upon the face of the earth. It will not be like the storm of the flood of Noah. It will be the flood of final judgment, and it is coming. The greatest threat to you and I and to humanity is not who we elect, but the white-hot wrath of God against sin. Are you ready? In his lectures on Galatians, Luther said of Christ, if Christ himself is made guilty of all the sins that we have committed, then we are absolved from all sins. Not through our own good works or merits, 
but through Christ alone. Dear friend, Jesus has taken your guilt upon himself on the cross. He became sin in your place. He was treated as if he were the worst sinner who ever lived so that you yourself might go free. It is therefore not up to you. It is up to Christ. He is your Lord, and he took responsibility for your soul. He did what needed to be done. It is for you to be still, to cease striving, to behold the works of the Lord, but to stop. Stop trying to be good enough to save yourself, to make yourself right with God, to do for yourself what Christ has already done for you. Be still. It is done. It is finished. He will be exalted in all the earth, and by grace you will be saved. Shall we pray? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this glorious gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God, preached by prophets and apostles and preeminently by Jesus Christ, your Son, and by your grace and power recovered in the church that we might bear witness in our day. Have mercy on us, O Lord, each one, and save us all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.